Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemonk podcast. We are joining forces with our nephrology colleagues for a special episode this week. We want to let some of the masterminds behind this event and what's called a pod crawl, explain a little bit about what's going to be happening with us and a variety of other podcasts. Yeah, this is a different segment. And this time it's just going to be me and Dan. Rona, he was too busy. He had other things to do. He was watching the TV series, The Perfect Match. All right, everybody. We'll start off with a segment from Dr. Joel Toff, who's kicking us off with explaining what Neff Madness is. Welcome to the Neff Madness Pod Crawl. The idea behind a pod crawl is for a variety of podcasts to coordinate on timing and topic to push a theme and get each other's listeners to explore all of the podcasts. One of the very first goals behind Neff Madness was to build a community. And in the early years of Twitter, Neff Madness was central to the formation of Neff Twitter and defining the ethos that makes our online community kind, intelligent, vibrant, and interesting. The Neff Madness Pod Crawl hopes to inspire and grow the nephrology podcast community in the same way. For 2023, our second year, Pod Crawl has assembled the Avengers of medical podcasts. We have the Curbsiders, get the skinny on mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Core IM will be covering kidney transplant in their classic five pearl format. The Cardio Nerds will be covering the effect of heart failure devices on kidney health. Freely Filtered will try to understand thrombotic microangiopathy. ISN Global Kidney Care goes deep on IgA nephropathy. The Cribsiders look at transitions, first the pediatrics to adult nephrology transition, and then from living to death with palliative nephrology. And Fellow on Call will be covering onco-nephrology. And finally, the Nephron segment looks at transgender health and CKD. Eight podcasts, one for each region in this year's Neff Madness. Go to nephmadness.com slash podcrawl to get links to all of the shows. Thanks. All right, listeners. So today we're taking a break from our normal active series and joining forces with some fantastic nephrologists becoming a part of the Neff Madness pod crawl, which I didn't know a lot about until this. And we're going to hear a lot from them about this. But we have three amazing nephrologists here and super excited to get you on this show on Onco Nephrology. It's going to be really helpful. We're going to cover high yield topics like how to think about immune checkpoint inhibitor nephritis and things like that. So it'll be really good. So first I want to have our guests introduce themselves. So I'm going to go with Matt Abramson. So can you give us a fun fact about yourself and just introduce yourself? Thank you so much for the warm welcome. My name is Matt Abramson. I am a nephrologist at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in uh, New York City. And I've been practicing nephrology there for the past three years. Previously, I did a subspecialty fellowship in onconephrology, Memorial Zone Kettering. My interest for uh, cancer and the kidneys is pretty evident based on my training. However, specifically for nephrology, um, I have an interesting anecdote. So 
my wife always sends me interesting uh, articles. And today she sent me one about how a man was saved after being infected with a, a brain-eating amoeba with an old antibiotic that was ha hasn't been used in a long time. And I said, what happened to the kidneys? Funny enough, the article did mention the patient did have kidney injury, but it just reminds me though, um, you have to think of the patient as a whole and not just one organ. That's why I do like nephrology. It kind of brings everything together. Yeah, it totally does. You know, in, in, in the cancer world, we're just focused on that one cancer and then we're like, consult a nephrologist. I don't know what's happening with this AKI and this magnesium, but what the point of today is. So next I've, we have Dr. Tim Yao. Hi, my name is Tim Yao. I'm a nephrologist and clinical educator at Washington University in St. Louis. I spend about half my time just doing clinical nephrology work, interest mostly in uh, glomerular disease. And then I also do a, a lot of time spending teaching first-year medical students and clinical skills. I guess fun fact about me, I really like listening to and playing traditional Irish music. And that is uh, not the norm for oh. a tall Asian guy. Yeah, yeah. Do you do bagpipes or what's no? The so I grew up playing like piano, kind of classical, but I kind of shifted to guitar in um, high school. And so I mostly play stringed instruments now. So anything with strings, I can kind of get by mostly guitar and violin. I'll play a little bit of mandolin, banjo stuff too, but mostly guitar and a violin at this point. Nice, nice. You, you know, I actually, I watched Braveheart when I was, you know, back in the day. And then that really got me into Celtic music, actually. I was it, like, this is awesome. It's really awesome music. And I'll say like, what I love about the music is that like, it's, there's like a common repertoire of like hundreds or probably thousands of songs. And you can kind of go anywhere and just uh, meet up with people who have that same interest and kind of sit around and drink beer with them and play music together. It's, I've met a lot of great people that way. Yeah, fascinating. That's awesome. And last on my screen, I've got Dr. Scott Stockholm. Hey, I'm Dr. Stockholm. I'm a second year renal fellow here at Washington University with Dr. Yao, who's one of my attendings. Yeah, really love nephrology, was uh, chemistry and mathematics uh, majors in college. So it kind of just made sense when I got into, uh, you know, being a physician that nephrology was where I'd find myself. Fun facts, my wife and I have four cats. One of them only has three legs. So I guess that's a little bit interesting. I'm in the coffee. Recently, I've been doing a lot of French press, AeroPress. I've got my eye on maybe like an espresso machine, but that's not really like fellow level yet. That's an so maybe maybe when I become an attending, that'll be where I where I put my focus for coffee. Yeah, that's yeah. That's like private practice level. Those machines <laughs> get up there. <laughs> they do. They do very quickly. So yeah. and now I know what to get you when you graduate. Thank you for <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> Get your nice little espresso machine. Yep. So let's just go ahead and jump in. So I'm going to start with a case. Then I'm going to throw it over to Dan to tell us a little bit about what immune checkpoint inhibitors are. And then we'll start asking our expert nephrologist panel, have a little bit of a roundtable discussion on the topic. So let's say we have a 72-year-old female who was had recently diagnosed lung adenocarcinoma that was metastatic to her right femur and left shoulder. She was adamantly opposed to chemotherapy, but she heard about this new thing called Keytruda on the TV commercials, and she's really interested in it. Fortunately for her, her PDL1 was 65%, and we started her on monotherapy with Pembrolizumab. She was doing quite well, actually had a complete response on her scans after four cycles of that Pembrolizumab, which really fit with her high PDL1 score, so she's one of those people who responded very well. She then took a trip to Florida after cycle five infusion. And when she gets back, calls into the office to report some nausea and malaise. 
she thinks it's just some jet lag, but her daughter was convinced to, you know, hey, you need to call in and get checked out. You get some labs and one major change and really the only major change that you noticed was her creatinine is now 4.2 from a baseline of 2.3. So before we get into this, Dan, can you just briefly describe how checkpoint inhibitors work for both our nephrology listeners and our regular hemoc listeners? Yeah, I'm really glad that this made it onto the bracket this year. These immune checkpoint inhibitors have really caused a huge shift in cancer therapy over the past decade since they were first introduced back in 2011. Ipilimumab, one of our CTLA and 4 inhibitors, was the first of these drugs to get approved. And nowadays, they're first and second line therapies for tons of different kinds of cancer, I think over 50 types of cancer. And we have seen some pretty exciting data showing that there's a subset of patients who seem to have a very durable response. Cancers like melanoma, great example of this, and of course in lung cancer, we're seeing some pretty exciting responses to this therapy as well. The way they work is they try and unmask cancers to the immune system that have figured out a way to disguise themselves. And usually the way tumors do this is by engaging the T cells immunologic breaks, or basically a way for the immune system to avoid attacking itself. And so if we are able to block the signal that stops those T cells from engaging with the tumor cells, the thought is the tumor cells will be recognized by the immune system and then get destroyed. We have a few different classes, like we talked about CTLA-4 inhibitors, ipilimumab and tremolimumab. They're really a mouthful. More commonly, we're targeting PD-1 and PD-L1, sort of the PD-1 axis, PD-L1 being the ligand for PD-1. These are your drugs like nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and then on the ligand side, dervalumab, atezolizumab. But of course, Engaging the immune system is a double-edged sword a lot of the time. Although we can attack tumor cells with the immune system, there are off-target effects, and sometimes the immune system gets activated against normal tissues. Most commonly, we see a ton of colitis uh, and some skin involvement too, dermatitis. Pneumonitis, also very common, thyroiditis. But I have seen a handful of patients get kidney reactions as well, some immune-related adverse events or IREEs involving the kidney. So have you all seen this come through your consult queue? What kind of AKIs are you typically seeing in association with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors? I can start off with this one, Dan. Uh, thank you for that introduction. That was very interesting. You know, we certainly have a biased uh, viewpoint because we see only the acute kidney injuries and you see all the patients that thrive without any injuries to their kidneys. But we do see a fair share of patients with kidney injury in the setting of checkpoint inhibitors. You know, it's not the most common immune-related adverse event, but it's not extremely rare either. The largest retrospective case series have shown uh, an incidence of approximately between 3 and 5% of patients will develop acute kidney injury during their course of their immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies. Patients undergoing those treatments may get AKI from other reasons, however, and AKI in general in that population can be up to 15%. But directly related to the immune checkpoint inhibitors, probably between 3 and 5%, oftentimes H3 AKI, rarely requiring dialysis, but it has been reported. So we definitely see them in our clinic in our day-to-day. Yeah, that's definitely more than I, I would have expected, to be honest, just because I, I'm mostly a benign hematologist. So I maybe this is why I haven't seen quite as much of it. But it's true that and that may be why I don't see quite as much of it. But that's pretty impressive. Is there a specific subtype of, of kidney injury that tends to result from immune therapy? I'll take that one. And so, yeah, typically, I mean, we're going to talk about kind of like the various manifestations of kidney injury uh, in patients on checkpoint inhibitors. But usually what we see is what we call an acute tubular interstitial nephritis. And the way I like to think about tubular interstitial nephritis is it's an allergic or an immune response in 
the tubules or the interstitium of the kidney. I think importantly, it's not typically a glomerular disease, so we don't typically see blood or protein. So how I think of this phenomenon is almost like your typical drug allergy. So a patient who maybe, for example, is allergic to penicillin or a sulfa might develop a rash on their body. And patients who are allergic to penicillin or sulfa might also develop a rash in their kidney. And the way that manifests is with infiltrate of T cells into the tubular interstitium. And so you can see how like a class of medicines like the checkpoint inhibitors, which are literally just putting the brakes on the T cells might lead to immune activation and, and the resultant infiltration into the tubular interstitium of the kidney. Yeah, it's fascinating that, you know, there's a specific type of response that you commonly see, but it can be variable, which is going to be interesting as we evolve this discussion. So let's say we have this patient in front of us. We're the oncologist. We are saying, well, it's probably pre-renal because our patients have diarrhea, failure to thrive, all these things. But this lady was doing really well. So it didn't really fit that mold. And when we think about workup, what should we be ordering? And how can we differentiate this from some other drug-induced AKI, things like that, you know, another medication-induced AKI? What workup should we be doing? And for the medications, which ones should we be really focused on? So I think the first thing is to recognize a problem. You know, acute kidney injury can be pretty subtle, especially when it's more of a progressive kidney dysfunction, maybe over weeks and not necessarily from one day to the next. Even if a creatinine rises by 0.3 grams per deciliter, that is still considered an acute kidney injury. And it should just raise some red flags, especially as like with this patient, she doesn't have any symptoms or signs of volume depletion or dehydration. No, she doesn't have diarrhea. So taking out the pre-renal component, you know, a rising creatinine should be telling you there may be a problem. We see in um, these retrospective studies that about half the time, patients with kidney injury uh, related to checkpoints also have another immune-related adverse event, most commonly a rash, but less commonly can be colitis, like you mentioned, pneumonitis, thyroiditis, et cetera, et cetera, hypophysitis, et cetera. Patients who have other immune-related adverse events and a rising creatinine should consider having kidney injury related to the checkpoint inhibitor. Yeah, I'll add to this, like, you know, when you have a patient like this, you treat it, we're obviously talking about something very specific, AKI in the setting of immune checkpoint inhibitors, but like this patient should still get evaluated just like you would any other AKI with a good history. You'd do an exam to evaluate the volume status. You'd first try to think, is this a pre-renal picture? Is, is she volume depleted? Was she throwing up? Do I need to give her some crystalloid? You'd probably just at baseline, get a kidney ultrasound, rule out a post-renal type picture. And then in the end, you're left maybe thinking, is this an intrinsic AKI? And when you're thinking about intrinsic AKI, you're really going to use the urine to kind of guide what portion of the kidney is involved. Like I mentioned before, checkpoint inhibitors typically don't cause a glomerular disease, but you're going to get a UA because if it shows blood, protein, things like that, all of a sudden you're thinking about you know nephrotic, nephritic things. But the classic urine finding for immune checkpoint inhibitors leading to an interstitial nephritis would be white blood cells in the urine, white blood cell casts without evidence of urinary tract infection. So you kind of just treat it just like you would any other AKI, kind of first trying to decide pre-post-intrinsic, and then if you're settling on the intrinsic AKIs, trying to determine, are we dealing with a glomerular etiology, tubular, interstitial, et cetera? All this is really fascinating to me. And one thing that always stuck in my head, at least throughout training and just when I think about immune checkpoint inhibitor-related nephritis, I always assumed there's got to be blood. I mean, the blood is the big thing, but it seems like it's a lot more complicated than that. So can you talk a little bit about the specificity of this 
white cell casts and the pyuria versus seeing something like a lot of blood and protein? And, and I know that's a hard question to answer because obviously, you know, this is a complicated disease, but just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Right. So I'll take that the second part. When you see blood and protein in the urine concurrently, especially when it's more than trace protein, when you see one plus, two plus, or even three plus protein, that signifies there's probably glomerular disease, meaning that there's glomerular damage going on. And that takes you away from the idea that it's the injury is solely related to the tubular interstitial nephritis. That's my branch this point decision there. Now, if you had a patient that did not have blood or protein, and only had white blood cells or white blood cell casts in the absence of urinary tract infection, that more likely suggests tubular interstitial nephritis, which is a tubular interstitial disease. It's non-glomerular by definition. Now, if your urinalysis is entirely bland and you have acute kidney injury, it could still be tubular interstitial nephritis. And some of the retrospective studies actually shown only about 50% of patients with AKI have white blood cells or white blood cell casts in the urine. You still have to think about that being on your differential. However, a patient that does not have blood or protein is very unlikely to have glomerular disease. Got it. So right now, we're, these immune checkpoint-related nephritis issues are not necessarily glomerular in etiology, which is why you may not see lots of blood and protein in the urine but you could see in this, you know, again, 50%, but it seems relatively specific, or at least makes you think about this immune checkpoint inhibitor event is when you see something like white cell cast and serial priuria. Is that fair to say? That's correct. Yes. Got it. Got it. So, you know, this patient, when we were talking with her, we got that history, you know, we confirmed, like you'd said, euvolemic on exam, not really throwing up. She does take pantobrazole to help manage her GERD. She's continued on that through therapy. You know, on reviewing the rest of her sort of on a full review of systems, we don't really see anything else suggest that there are other immune related adverse events going on. And so, you know, does this change how we think about it? Are we thinking that this means anything for how her kidneys might recover? What else should we be asking her? So that's a great point that you bring up the PPI, the proton pump inhibitor. In the retrospective studies that we have, the PPI is very strongly associated with the acute kidney injury in these patients. We don't really understand the mechanism as to why. Potentially, it could be related to that the, the PPI primes the immune system to, to attack the kidney, almost like a second hit with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. When a patient's on a PPI and has an acute kidney injury with checkpoint inhibitors, the first step should be to, to stop the PPI and then go from there. But whenever I hear PPI in this situation, I, there's a strong association with interstitial nephritis. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, that, that's good to know. I like the two-hit hypothesis there. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially as, as an oncologist. So, you know, we got our patient getting some hydration, just in case she looks euvolemic, but you never know. So give her a little bit of fluid. She certainly didn't look overloaded, so we think that's a safe thing to do. We got a urinalysis, waiting on that to come back. While we're waiting, I was just wondering, so, you know, it sounds like the overwhelming majority of these IRAE AKIs are related to immune activation, right? And, you know, they said sort of acute tubular interstitial nephritis type picture. Are there any like rarer pathologies? Do we see almost like rheumatologic disease ever? These vasculitis type pictures? Uh, what are the other things that are out there? Yeah, so they're certainly a minority. I think when you look back kind of at the original databases of patients who were biopsied, we were almost predominantly seeing tubular interstitial nephritis. Now that these drugs have been around for, like you said, 10 plus years at this point, more and more patients have been biopsied. We have slightly larger kind of retrospective cohorts to look at. 
we're still seeing the majority, I would take 90% plus is just straightforward tubular interstitial nephritis, but we are seeing some other glomerular etiologies mixed in. Most of these are essentially case reports, but IgA nephropathy, ANCA-associated vasculitis, C3 glomerulopathy, FSGS, all of these have been reported, but I think when you, when you kind of sum them all up, they still kind of make up a minority of the cases. And again, I think usually a disease that's glomerular in etiology will be suggested by again, the presence of blood or protein on urinalysis. Again, emphasizing why it's so important to kind of look at the urine and spin the urine sediment when you are dealing with these AKIs. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that there are other possibilities because you just have this T-cell engagement that, you know, you can have any sort of immune activation, but it's still very interesting to me that there seems to be some common pathophysiologic basis because majority of our cases is this tubular interstitial nephritis that you, that you were describing. Let's say for our patient, we tried the fluids, creatinine, her creatinine actually bumped to 4.5. We rechecked it in a couple of days, told her to stay hydrated. We had already referred her to, to nephrology at this point. You know, we're oncologists, so we, we just got the UA. We didn't get any urine protein or urine creatinine and didn't do the right thing, but we got the UA at least. And uh, it showed that she ha- was positive for protein on the dipstick and she did have red blood cells on in the urine sample as well. So now she's going to you in nephrology clinic. At what point should we as as oncologists think about empiric steroids or would you recommend that versus doing something like a biopsy? I'll start and I want to let Matt take it first, but I bet you, you you pull the three of us, you might get different answers from all three of us. I think that's why we're having this discussion. But Matt, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you would have to say. This is a wonderful discussion. And I want to preface it by saying that at least at my institution, most of our patients with a mild kidney injury, especially if they have other immune-related adverse events occurring, they are already have been trialed on steroids, varying doses. That being said, a patient who has a mild AKI or a moderate AKI, not a severe, who doesn't have any signs of glomerular disease on the urine analysis and, and urine protein studies, it's reasonable to treat preemptively with steroids, but you really need to give it an appropriate course and give it time to heal and to see if there's a steroid response. Now, if the steroid response is inadequate, suboptimal, or they have severe AKI, where they're pending potential dialysis, or they have glomerular signs on the workup, I think a biopsy should be the first step in the management because the treatment will be different. So we got Matt who says biopsy the first step if you've got glomerular issues, but low threshold to start steroids. All right, next. I will echo that. So in in this case, you said there's blood and protein. I feel like that's a suggestion that maybe we're not dealing with like a straightforward tubular interstitial nephritis. If you had reframed it and said, oh, there was sterile pyuria and, you know, let's say you just saw white blood cell cast, then I'd say, oh, man, that's pretty definitive. I would just start the steroids and presume this is TIN from the checkpoint inhibitors. I agree with everything Matt said. You also have to keep in mind, like, to get a kidney biopsy, it's it's not a big deal, but you need stable hemoglobin, platelets, coags, all these things. And a lot of oncology patients do not have stable parameters for those things. And so a lot of times you're in a situation where you'd like to biopsy, but you really can't safely do that. It's always nice looking at the tissue and knowing definitively what you're looking at. I tend to biopsy because I really like to know and I like to be able to know what I'm treating. And I I think it also provides a lot of prognostic information too. Like if you had a patient whose creatinine was two to start with and now it's four and 
you did the biopsy, maybe it shows tubular schizonephritis that you expected, but like 80% of her cortex was just irreversibly damaged. It may be really helpful in knowing like, hey, it doesn't matter what I do for this patient, I'm not going to get a whole lot back. So there's utility to the biopsy simply beyond diagnosis, but I will say it can be challenging in some patients with malignancy oftentimes. Got it. So Tim is on the board of biopsy can really help us with prognostication in the right scenario, but still low threshold for these steroids. So now last, I want to ask Scott. So, you know, I'm a fellow, you're a fellow. Let's say that I consult, you know, I say, Scott, I've got this patient. I don't know what I'm doing. The UA was messed up. What are you going to tell me to do? Not to uh, repeat uh, Dr. Yao and, and Matt as well. You know, for this patient, their creatinine is double, you know, their baseline. And that's kind of indicating a lot of damage has already occurred. So for me, the important thing is the trajectory and how rapidly the creatinine is rising as well. You know, those initial couple points of creatinine increase are substantial. So if, if we're in a situation where we're worried that there's active damage, I am absolutely down to get a biopsy. But I really feel in this case, I might go ahead and just try steroids to kind of in the moment halt things if I can. But I definitely would, as Dr. Yao said, you know, getting that biopsy is really important. Um, another point is, you know, if this therapy is helping ultimately, and I'm sure we'll get there, but the question is, can we continue these agents or not? And I think, you know, having a biopsy to show us is really helpful. Yeah. I really like all these answers because coming from my head from the oncology framework, everything in me doesn't want to start steroids. You know, it's easy for me to say, okay, they got colitis, I got to start the steroids, bad colitis, you know, easy for me to do that low threshold. But, you know, let's say this patient who I'm like, wow, you know, she got a great response and she is the patient who has the right protoplasm to respond really well to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. If that's going through my head as an oncologist, you know, just from a practical perspective, and I know it varies from institution to institution, if we're calling you guys, you know, is that something that we should pick up the phone and say, hey, look, we really want to continue this. Can we get a biopsy more urgently? And how do you approach that when we ask for something like that? So I've had exactly that same conversation with oncologists. And, you know, again, it's a very personalized decision. I've in the past felt pretty strongly that we've been dealing with interstitial nephritis related to an immune checkpoint inhibitor started steroids. And the question from the oncologist has been like, I really want to use this medicine in the future. It's what their cancer is responding to. Can we biopsy them to definitively prove that. And again, it gets to the point of like, they want that in their back pocket to be able to be used again, totally reasonable. They've got a essentially incurable cancer that only responds to this drug. And so I biopsy patients for that. I would say it's, I haven't been surprised yet. I haven't found anything other than what I thought I would find. Again, usually the urine is able to kind of tell you what you're going to see, but totally reasonable conversation to have. Yeah. And, you know, you and, and Scott both touched on that rechallenge idea. And that's, that's such an important thing to be thinking about, right? Because on the one hand, not to minimize colitis or pneumonitis, these things can be fatal, absolutely, just like any of the other IREs. But if I had a patient who has colitis and say they're an older, frailer patient, they don't really have a lot of other treatment options out there besides immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, I might have an easier time thinking about rechallenging, thinking that, okay, well, if the diarrhea comes back, Maybe we can just suppress it again with some steroids, another treatment holiday. Let's just see if we can't bring you here again. But with AKI, I mean, you're going to end up further limiting any additional treatment options if, if they end up with a more permanent injury to their kidneys. And so if you are able to prove that, you know, be it by biopsy or by improvement with steroids or whatever else, that somebody did have an immune-related AKI, is there ever a scenario when you can think about rechallenging them? Is that something y'all are, are doing? 
we were challenging patients quite often. The retrospective studies actually are quite reassuring. The recurrence of acute kidney injury after rechallenge has been between like around 16 and 23%. So I've had quite a few patients that have been rechallenged without recurrence of AKI, especially if we're dealing with a, you know, an interstitial nephritis and not a glomerular nephritis. I think it would be safe for many patients to be rechallenged with the caveat that they have a, you know, up to a 25% chance of AKI recurrence. It's way better than I thought it would be. I mean, it seems like something where, oh, the immune system now has a taste for kidney. It's going to go after it again, but that's pretty reassuring. You're right. Fortunately, with this patient, we didn't end up having to go there. She was able to recover her, her renal function with some steroids and, you know, she wasn't up for trying it again. She did have an actionable mutation on her initial genetic testing, a KRAS G12C. So we switched her over to Satorosib and she's continued to do well. The last topic I wanted to touch on uh, related to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy and the kidney is one that I think I think rightfully gives me a tremendous amount of anxiety. Let's say instead of uh, just a history of CKD with their baseline creatinine 2.4, our patient in this scenario had a history of end-stage renal disease and had undergone a kidney transplant prior to her NSCLC diagnosis. Obviously, transplant patients do have a higher cancer instance, you know, up to four times higher than the general population, we think that obviously their immune suppressive regimen plays a role in this. So we have to suppress their T-cell-mediated immunity to prevent graft rejection, right? But again, double-edged sword, it allows these cancers to proliferate because it also decreases tumor surveillance. So with our increasing use of immune checkpoint inhibitors in cancer therapy, are you ever seeing people who have the gall to attempt immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy in a transplant patient? I'll start by disclosing that I'm a general nephrologist, not a transplant nephrologist. So I personally would never have the gall to do this. <laughs> However, exactly as you mentioned, like it would make you worry. Absolutely. Because yeah. you're revving up the immune system in someone who is, you know, prone to rejection. I will say also that like in all of the original immune checkpoint inhibitor trials, transplant recipients were excluded for obvious reasons. So yeah. everything we're kind of looking back at retrospectively, and we do have a little bit of data. I think the biggest cohort was like multi-center retrospective study looking at about 70 patients with kidney transplants who received immune checkpoint inhibitors for a variety of cancers. And actually the rejection rate was quite high. It was in the 40 to 45% range. Usually the rejections occurred within a month or so. And of those patients who rejected, about two thirds of them actually lost their graft. So it was a fairly high rate of rejection and the rejection itself was quite severe. It was a mix of both T-cell cellular mediated rejection and antibody mediated rejection. That being said, you're usually only kind of considering this option if you have a patient who only has very limited options. And when you look at it from the oncologic standpoint, a significant number, I think it was a third or more actually had a very significant oncologic remission based on the therapy. So you again, it's like the double-edged sword we talked about, except it's magnified, you know, 10 times in this population. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really impressive that that's such a high rejection rate, but I can think of certain situations, you know, my patients I treat a lot of lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma. Those respond really well to immune therapy. And, you know, let's say they had a renal transplant in the past for whatever reason, and they have one of these lymphomas that, you know, I think is going to really respond well to a therapy like this, it's weighing that risk-benefit situation on potentially curing lymphoma, right? That's the interesting thing about that. So let's say we know this is a pretty impressive rejection rate. 
let's have a hypothetical scenario where our transplant nephrologist said, let's go for it because it's the only shot we got. And we had rejection. What kind of ways can we mitigate this and manage it? Or really at this point, are we saying that, you know, just do the steroids and call it a day? As Tim mentioned, you know, the early case series were pretty dismal, but you have to weigh the risks of the cancer versus the risks of rejection. There's been a few other updates since those early studies, still very, very early in terms of the research realm. There's been some success with using preemptive steroid dosing, using mini-pulse steroids, starting the steroid dose maybe a week, approximately a week prior to the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor, and continuing it basically as a maintenance dose through the therapy. And there's showed some variant success. Other strategies can can be considered if the transplant nephrologist feels it's safe enough, would be to switch the calcineurin inhibitor maybe to an mTOR inhibitor, which mTOR inhibitors maybe not as potent as immune suppressants, but they also have some uh, actually additionally anti-tumor effects. The same for mycophenolate, mofetil has some, some anti-tumor effects as well. So that regimen has been used with varying success along with the uh, preemptive steroid dosing. There are clinical trials ongoing with uh, kidney transplant patients receiving checkpoint inhibitors using similar strategies. And I think that's the key is the clinical trials. You know, as we're talking here, we want to really emphasize to our listeners, we have retrospective observational studies. We don't have a lot of good data here. So if you need to throw that Hail Mary, we can consider it, but it's not something that is routinely being done in practice. We have these small data, but we need to know more about it. And, you know, I think that wraps up this discussion, at least for the first part of this episode. You know, these immune checkpoint inhibitors have been around now since 2011. We're really using them for such a wide variety of cancers in both the solid tumor space and the malignant hematology space. So in my opinion, you know, nothing else cl- comes close to matching their impact over the last 10 years. And this team seems like a pretty strong contender to make it deep into this year's bracket. Yeah. And I want to change gears a little bit here, talk about a different patient I've been working with, also a lung cancer patient. I think this will tie in nicely to, to the second contender that we're going to talk about today. I don't want to spoil it. This is my preferred contender. So Viva and I are a little at odds here. In any event, so she's a 56-year-old woman. And she was recently diagnosed with an earlier stage tumor, like I mentioned, stage 2P, non-small cell lung cancer. She has had her resection and she's following up with us in clinic for her adjuvant therapy. She is very active all over her electronic health record app. And she was browsing through her labs and she saw me in clinic and she was like, why is my magnesium always low? And, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who really likes physiology and and thinking about all this stuff. But I got to admit, even though it is the second most abundant intracellular cation after potassium and obviously a cofactor in a ton of different reactions in the body. I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. I kind of just, it's low, you give some back and that's it, right? Like, What kind of symptoms should I be asking her about to screen if she's actually symptomatic of her epimagnesemia? So if you're worried about magnesium being low specifically, normally kind of nonspecific symptoms initially, a little bit of nausea, some fatigue, very nonspecific until it gets more severe, you might get muscle tetany. People might have seizures and they may even have uh, cardiac arrhythmias if it gets severe enough. So it can get pretty serious. Yeah, not really. Wow, that is, that's way more serious than I was expecting. I guess at the extremes, anything can do some some wild stuff to the body, but I'm going to have to start paying more attention to this, I guess. I kind of always just assumed that the hypomagnesemia was related to all the fluids we give people. You know, you, you mess up electrolytes when you flood people with fluids with their pre-medications and all, all that. But are there 
other mechanisms that they can lead to this with our treatments? Absolutely. There's a lot of drugs. Um, I'm sure that we'll touch on a couple pretty soon. But, you know, it's really important for us to understand a little bit more about magnesium in the way that it's stored. And then we can kind of see how it leaves the body and things like that, too. One thing I also want to mention, kind of tying into what Scott said, is that magnesium is like one of these forgotten electrolytes, but actually impacts a lot of the other electrolytes as well. So we always have to, you know, one of the big medicine pearls is, right, you can never replace your potassium until you replace your magnesium. There's a great Tony Brew tutorial on that if anyone wants to know. But like, you know, magnesium also has profound effects on calcium too. It impacts PTH transcription. So when your mag is low, oftentimes your K is a little low, your calcium is a little low. And so it can lead to a lot of weird, subtle, vague symptoms that can be actually hard to attribute to one thing only. Yeah, that's super important to remember. I'm so glad you brought that up. And we'll we'll put a link to that tutorial in our show notes as well. And I'm a huge fan of going back to all these basic science things, going back to that step one knowledge. So where does magnesium hang out in the body? Like how is it distributed in a patient? Yeah, so magnesium, actually, most of it, about 99% is in bone, muscles, and soft tissue. Really, only 1% is kind of floating around in extracellular fluids. So, you know, if you get a patient with low magnesium, that's kind of indicative to you that, hey, their body stores are probably actually very, very low for this value to be low. When it's in the ECF, about a third is bound to proteins like albumin. The remaining two-thirds is kind of free to be filtered in and out of the kidneys, and that's kind of the magnesium that we we look for so and so you know in addition to giving them a bag of magnesium in the infusion room is there anything i can tell my patient in terms of like stuff she should be eating to try and increase her magnesium intake yeah so i mean a lot of people you know jump immediately obviously to like a magnesium supplement but we're going to talk a little bit about this like when it comes to treatment but mm-hmm. one of the limiting factors of oral magnesium repletion is that it causes a lot of gi side effects and so there are actually a lot of foods that you can prescribe foods that are usually high in protein, meats, cereals, nuts, and things like that oftentimes are high in magnesium. You know, milk has a fair bit of magnesium. So there are ways actually to to supplement it orally in foods. Peanut butter is a great example. You know, two tablespoons of peanut butter has like nearly 40 milligrams of magnesium. So peanut butter and milk is like actually a great way to you know supplement magnesium. That's a, what a lot of my VA colleagues will tell their patients, you know, drink milk and eat some peanut butter and your magnesium will get better. You know, it doesn't come with the GI side effects of the mag oxide. Nuts and seeds, seeds, pumpkin seeds have the highest, con- one of the highest contents if some patients do like it. I did not know that pumpkin seeds. So now, and it's really interesting that we're talking about the GI side effects of magnesium supplements because in cancer, we're we're trying to prevent the diarrhea, but then we have the low magnesium and we give more magnesium and probably make the magnesium. I don't know. I'm excited to get into this a little bit more. So I have two questions for you. So question number one, where's the absorption of this magnesium coming from when we take it orally? And then the second question is, and this is a loaded question here, when we think about the kidney, how are we handling magnesium? Is it filtered, secreted, or both? That's a really great question. So when you're eating magnesium, you kind of absorb it in two primary ways. One is paracellularly. These are your tight junction proteins. You probably maybe heard of these Claudin channels, Claudin 2, 7, and 12 specifically. You also have some absorption uh, transcellularly, and these are different channels called TRPM6 and TRPM7 specifically. And we'll kind of come back to those when we do talk about the kidney as well. 
speaking of the kidney and kind of like how the kidney sees magnesium, it's pretty amazing. In a day, um, your kidney will filter about 2.4 grams magnesium and it actually reabsorbs about 2.3 grams so you're saving a lot of magnesium and what's pretty astonishing is when you have hypomagnesemia and your kidneys working well you can excrete as little as 12 milligrams in a day if that gives you any indication of how good the kidney is when you know everything's working properly at holding on to uh, magnesium one cool fact, you know, we always talk about the kidney being this incredibly efficient organ. We're very proud of our organ. Scott mentioned how it can reabsorb essentially 99.5% of the filtered magnesium. But on the other hand, it also has the capability of excreting 90% of the filtered magnesium if you want to. So like, for example, like in a patient who is being given a lot of magnesium boluses IV, so the, the clinical scenario typically is a patient with preeclampsia, right, who is getting just a lot of magnesium to prevent seizures and their serum mag is six. If you wait a couple hours, the kidney will dump 90 to 95% of that magnesium very quickly. So it has this huge variability to kind of just adapt to whatever it needs to do. But as we're going to talk about with some of these drugs, like, the kidney is often the source of a lot of the hypomagnesemia we see in patients on certain chemotherapies because its ability to manage magnesium appropriately is gone awry. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, it is a very efficient organ that, that you're right about that. I guess it's necessary for it to be able to regulate this, but man, that seems like a lot of energy. It's just like it pushes it all out and then it soaks it all right back up. Where along the nephron is all that happening? I want to preface this by telling a quick story, which is when I was a, a new attending here at WashU, one of the other attendings I was on consults with was asking the fellows this in teaching rounds, like, where is magnesium handled in the kidney? And I remember thinking, like, I'm an attending, I should know this. And I clearly don't know this. And I remember like kind of pulling out my notebook, was like, I'm going to take some notes here so I can teach this and I don't look like an idiot later. It's totally forgotten about. When you think about where the bulk of the filtrate is reabsorbed usually it's the proximal tubule right the proximal tubule just like reabsorbed indiscriminately about two-thirds of everything that comes through the glomerular filtrate so not the case for magnesium some of it does get absorbed there you know scott mentioned in the gi tract there's this transcellular reabsorption kind of in between cells and that's where the bulk of magnesium occurs is in the thick ascending limb of the loop of henley without Drawing a picture, if you think about that cell, you have kind of a sodium potassium two chloride transporter. That's the one that everyone thinks about. Loop diuretics work there. On that same kind of luminal side, you have a potassium channel. And then on the basal lateral side, you have a chloride channel. And so you have cations being spit out into the urine side and then anions being reabsorbed in the basal lateral side. And so what you end up with is this electrical positive gradient. And so magnesium being a positively charged cation is kind of driven across in between cells transcellularly because of that electrical gradient. And it's passed through by those channels that Scott mentioned, the claudins. That's where the majority of magnesium is reabsorbed in. There's also a paracellular pathway kind of in the distal convoluted tubules, similar to the GI tract, they are reabsorbed via the TRPM six and seven channels. And that usually accounts for about 15% of the magnesium reabsorption in the kidney. Okay, great. So we, we now we have a sense of how normally magnesium is handled throughout the body, some dietary sources, but now let's get back to our case. And so we have this patient in front of us and she's getting 
adjuvant chemotherapy because she had nodal disease. She had a tumor that was greater than four centimeters. And let's just say she had adenocarcinoma and histology. So we had planned on giving her cisplatin and pemetrexid. And we we as oncologists know cisplatin is one of those common things. But we want to hear from you. When we have these patients, what are the common cytotoxic chemotherapy agents that we should be thinking about and associating with low magnesium? Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, this patient with platinum-based chemotherapy. Platinum agents since I believe the 1980s have been pretty synonymous with us and with you all as well with hypermagnesemia. Back in the 1980s, there were phase one trials that showed patients treated with carboplatin. I believe about 10% of them went on to develop hypomagnesemia. More recently, cisplatin is the one that we all know, and that's an even higher risk of, of hypomag. About half of patients with that therapy will develop hypomagnesemia. The interesting thing about this, and I've had a patient or two that I've been taking care of, the hypomagnesemia can be even longer than the treatment itself, sometimes up to four or five, maybe even six years, because there's a suggestion that this medication is actually causing irreversible tubular damage that is causing the hypomagnesemia to persist. And so this is something to be you know, acutely aware of that we need to be checking magnesiums in these patients for even longer than the therapy itself. Yeah, I had no idea that it could stick around like that. I mean, we we always learn that, that cisplatin is hard on the kidneys and that you, know, you don't give it to patients who have a baseline CKD. You, you use a softer platinum agent like carboplatin or something like that if you have to. But when we're going for cure, we really do like to reach for cisplatin. It's really good to know that it, it's something that we have to follow in survivorship clinic too after they're done with therapy. But instead of adjuvant chemotherapy, let's say that our, our lung cancer patient was receiving a targeted agent as a part of her therapy, like one of our tyrosine kinase inhibitors. You know, I generally think of these as being pretty well tolerated. Obviously, there are some GI and cutaneous side effects uh, that we see pretty frequently, but certainly I don't think of them as causing an AKI or, or kidney injury as much. Do they ever give problems with magnesium? Do you ever see that come through clinic? Yeah, so it's actually a pretty common issue that I do see in my clinic. The EGFR TKIs, including cetuximab and panatumumab, there were very interesting early case series that were showing hypomagnesemia, and it was unclear why, and there was a lot of postulation. But over time, through basic science studies, it actually was found that there is the EGFR receptor in the kidney. When it is inhibited, it actually downregulates that transmembrane TRPM6 channel in the distal convoluted tumule that, that Tim and uh, Scott had mentioned previously. So it's a very elegant reason to explain why there's hypomagnesemia with the EGFR TKIs. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that I think about when I think about cetuximab and panitumumab is colon cancer is one thing that comes to mind. And then cetuximab, we also think about head and neck cancer as, as something that we've used in that population as well. And it's, to me, for a long time, I was just assuming that, oh, it has to do with nutrition. But it's really interesting that there's a mechanistic reason on why this is happening. One of the other questions that comes to mind for me. What about things like adjunctive therapy? So when we think about, you know, our patients, we're giving them things like bisphosphonates and other medicines like that. Do those also contribute to this magnesium wasting? And how should we think about that? Yeah, that is a really great question. You know, cancer patients are on all sorts of adjunctive therapy, not only, you know, chemotherapy, but obviously, you know, you mentioned bisphosphonates, a couple others come to mind, calcineurin inhibitors, amphotericin B, and then to go back, as previously mentioned, PPIs, 
such as pantoprazole. I know that we were talking about their association with checkpoint hemotoxicity and but PPIs can reduce your absorption of magnesium and are pretty notorious for causing hypomagnesemia within their own right. There's a myriad of ways that these medications cause shifting or disruption of different receptors, but all of those um, that we mentioned can be implicated in hypomag. It's important to keep a high index of suspicion and uh, make sure that we're ordering mags with our BMPs on those patients. That's awesome. So uh, thank you for for going over all that with us. And I, I think I'm convinced, you know, this is something I need to pay more attention to. And it clearly affects a huge number of patients with a variety of different things that we do, both chemotherapy and non-chemotherapy meds. But once I have decided that I'm going to care, like, what's the best way to fix this problem? Is Should I be giving everyone just IV mag with their chemo? Is there a more sustainable strategy that I should be going for? It really depends on like, the severity of it. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, some simple dietary changes that can be made to increase magnesium content in foods. Obviously, if patients are on PPIs and don't need them for, you know, a specific GI reason, stopping a medicine like a PPI in and of itself can be enough. Mag oxide as an oral repletion is typically like the first line if patients simply have like mild hypomagnesemia. So for your patient who just kind of chart checked herself but felt fine, let's say the mag was like 1.7 and it was marked as red, in that patient I would probably be looking at her meds, see if there's anything that I could stop, asking her to increase her dietary mag. And if, if it continued to kind of be low, I think mag oxide, oral mag oxide would be the first step. You know, giving IV mag is certainly something that you can do. It's usually reserved for kind of more severe cases of hypomagnesemia. But it's also important to remember, like thinking again about the huge range of the fractional excretion of mag. You can give a ton of IV mag and it'll replete it. But if the kidney is wasting it, it can really wasted again pretty fast. So it oftentimes can just be kind of like a short-term fix to get you out of the woods, but really depends on the severity. I think one important point I will mention is that you can actually kind of overwhelm your kidney's ability to reabsorb magnesium. So a one-time infusion of like, for example, two grams of IV mag sulfate is really no different than if I were to give like eight grams of IV mag sulfate, like you're going to get the same amount of mag sticking around in your body. And if you really do need to replete mag, let's say you have a very low level and it's accompanied by low K or maybe some EKG changes and it's kind of scary, you want to give kind of frequent IV mag pushes so that you can kind of bump the level up enough. And with what you just said, so I, I think that's really interesting that there's a capacity that we have to actually take in the magnesium that we're giving these patients through an IV. When you think about oral magnesium repletion with something like mag oxide, how do you think about dosing that? And how do you think about up titrating the dose? And with you, who has more experience with giving something like magnesium than I would, at what point are you worried more about diarrhea? Is there some dose cutoff or is it just kind of titrate to the, how the patient's actually doing? Yeah. So oral magnesium, you know, is there's definitely limitations, but its limitations are, depends on each patient. Some patients tolerate 800 milligram doses. Other patients only tolerate 400 milligram doses. Most patients at least tolerate 400, though. Very few will tolerate less than that. I would usually space them out throughout the day, maybe between 400 and 800 milligrams two or three times a day. And remember, you can never overdose these patients that are wasting magnesium with oral magnesium. I always say as much as you can tolerate. 
there are many different formulations of magnesium. Magnesium oxide is the most famous. And interestingly, it is probably the highest concentration of magnesium. So these patients that do take magnesium oxide probably take fewer pills than other formulations. But other patients uh, tolerate different formulations better with less diarrhea. So it really depends on what the patient tolerates. Just remember, make sure you give them an equivalent dose depending on which magnesium formulation they choose. Yeah. And I think one, one more thing I'll add to this, and this was always kind of challenging for me, is like there are ways to try and modify the renal effects of, of magnesium wasting. I always had difficulty trying to remember you know, which medicine does what, but if you think about like low magnesium causing low potassium and those electrolytes kind of being linked together, and you think about like the diuretics, they're also kind of linked together. So medicines like Lasix or hydrochlorothiazide, which typically cause low potassium, also will cause more magnesium wasting. And then diuretics like the potassium sparing diuretics, so the spironolactones or the aplerinones, or even the amylorides and the triumpterines, which are going to raise your serum potassium, also will raise your serum magnesium. So sometimes we'll use potassium sparing diuretics, not because a patient is overloaded or hypertensive, but basically to try to minimize the amount of magnesium wasting, to try to decrease the burden of the magnesium supplementation, as Matt mentioned. I love that idea. And that's such a helpful mnemonic too. Like the the potassium and mag are going together. One helps one, it might help the other. There are so many times in residency that I proposed a milleride for uh, diuretic resistance in patients with a high degree of proteinuria. And I got shot down every time. So I'm so happy to have another reason to use it. Well, awesome. I think that was a a great discussion of hypomag. And, uh, you know, we're increasing our use of EGFR inhibitors across tumor types, as Vivek referenced. And as Scott was talking about, this hypomagnesemia can cause some serious stuff. It makes you think about physiology of the kidney, the physiology of what the chemotherapy is doing. I think hypomagnesemia in chemotherapy patients is going to be a dark horse candidate to win this matchup. And I think I think we could see him at the top of the championship as well by the end of this. So that's what I'm pulling for. Yeah, I don't know about that, Dan. We'll see. I think <laughs> I'm, I'm new to death madness, but you know, I'm I'm also a Duke fan, which is a problem. My my wife's a UNC fan, so you know. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. But regardless, I think that it'll be interesting to see how all this shakes out. I love the discussion and hearing your thoughts because, as someone who kind of helps kind of make these teams in this region, this is exactly what we were hoping to have. We were hoping to have like a Duke or a number one seed like. Mm-hmm immune checkpoint inhibitors, which just like everyone loves, everyone knows, everyone is just all about them. And we wanted to match it up against something that was really cool that is maybe a little bit of an underdog that might make that 14-3 or 15-2 upset. So we'll see. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I'm hoping for it. We'll see it. All right, everybody. So thanks again for joining us. We have our three fantastic roundtable nephrology discussants here. Dr. Matt Abramson, Dr. Tim Yu, and Dr. Scott Stockholm. So thank you so much for joining us today and really, really excited about this and and hope to have you guys on again for some other discussions in the future. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Had a great time. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for being here. It was fantastic. All right. That wraps up another episode for the fellow on call. So we'll see you all later. Bye.